This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, episode number 104. Today, our special guests are Rick Weisbart and Jody Cross from the National Academies of Practice. Rick and Jody share the impact dialogue, healthy relationships, and polarity thinking has had on the organization and them as leaders. So don't go away. Hi, healthcare leaders. I'm Tracy Christofferson. And I'm Michelle Trosett. We're your hosts for Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast, and we are so grateful you joined us today. You're about to see healthcare problems and challenges through a brand new lens and take your leadership to a whole new level with this podcast. We've coached healthcare leaders from across North America for over 30 years as they strive to establish healthy healing organizations and thriving work cultures. This is the only podcast that shows healthcare leaders how to apply polarity thinking the missing logic in healthcare to their reoccurring challenges so they can stop wasting time, money, and resources on fixes that fail. If you want to create a healthy healing organization where staff and leaders thrive and perform at their highest level, where values are aligned, outcomes are sustainable, and the highest quality of care is delivered, then this podcast is for you. Keep listening. Each week, you're going to learn how to leverage a polarity mindset and manage competing priorities as we use a polarity lens to explore everyday challenges with the leaders who are striving to manage them. We're thrilled you're here. Hi, everybody. It's Tracy. And her sidekick, Michelle. Hello. Here we are. (laughs) Happy to be here. Yeah, happy to be here and happy to share this awesome podcast interview with all of you listeners out there. We had a great conversation with Dr. Jody Frost and Rick Weisbarth, uh, both leaders in the National Academies of Practice. Yeah, they're such great people. Yeah. Yeah. And leaders. (laughs) They really are. They really are. Yeah. Yeah. It was really great um, just chatting with them, you know, lessons learned across the years, the things that they have really valued um, in the changes within NAP and just kind of introducing NAP. You know, there's maybe a lot of our listeners aren't even aware that the National Academies of Practice, you know, is out there, what it does. And so I think it'll be great. For them to hear. Yeah, and I, I, I do think that'd be great if more people knew about it because they're a leading organization um, transforming interprofessional care. Um, and you're going to hear how they've done a lot of great work uh, in the last uh, several years, and a little bit about the history. And, and of course, me, there's no bias here. There's no bias given that Michelle was the president, <laughs> you know, and the media past president. Of no course bias. not. Mm-mm. Of course not. None, none. <laughs> Just have to acknowledge that on the front end, right? We got deep ties here, folks, right? Yeah, yeah, we do have deep ties. <laughs> we don't have any problem with that, and we don't have any problem shouting out success. So here we are, that's sharing right. it with the world. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's a story that needs to be told. Sure. And I'm really excited to share it with our listeners. And um, it was like, you know, for me, it was walking down memory lane, of course, in a lot of different ways. To your point, Tracy, we've been involved with the organization for a long time. And as Rick will tell us at the conclusion, there's it, the future's looking really bright. Or maybe he said that in the beginning. Somewhere in there, he said it. <laughs> Listen for it. Well, there you go. Here's your scavenger hunt. You have to look for the time when he said that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so you can let us post it. On iTunes when you write your review. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Write the timestamp. That's right. <laughs> so let us introduce to you our guest, uh, Jody and Rick, and uh, tell you a little bit about them so we can kick off their great interview. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jody Frost. She is an education consultant and facilitator with expertise in educational assessment, company competency-based education, professionalism, and interprofessional professionalism, interprofessional education, strategic thinking and planning, and leadership and clinical educator development programs. Jody's pretty well-rounded. Yeah, she's the expert in a lot of things. <laughs> she sure is. 
Uh, she currently serves as immediate past president of the National Academies of Practice and was elected as a distinguished scholar and fellow in 2014. And she also served as the founding vice chair of the Physical Therapy Academy. In addition, Dr. Frost is a founding member of the Interprofessional Professionalism Collaborative, consisting of 11 health professions and one assessment organization dedicated to defining, measuring, and applying the construct of interprofessional professionalism in practice, education, and research. After 25 years with the American Physical Therapy Association, or APTA, Dr. Frost retired as the lead academic affairs specialist, founding program director of the APTA accredited education fellowship in leadership, developer of APTA's clinical instructor credentialing programs, PT and PTA clinical performance instruments, and APTA professionalism self-assessment and patient professionalism assessment. She currently serves as an accreditation site visitor for ABPTR. FE, residencies, fellowships, and a manuscript reviewer for five journals within and external to the profession. Dr. Frost received her BS in physical therapy from Ithaca College, Massachusetts in counseling and personnel studies from Rowan University, her PhD from Temple University, and DPT from Marymount University. She was a tenured faculty member, director of clinical education and assistant chair at Temple University with past experiences as department director, center coordinator for clinical education and clinical instructor at pediatric and sports medicine centers. She was named a Catherine Worthingham fellow of the APTA in 2018, which is the highest honor bestowed to a member. Well, Jody is certainly the busiest retired person that I know. <laughs> Her husband, Joe, would say that too. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, let me introduce you to Rick Weisbart. Now, he received his Doctor of Optometry degree from the, the Ohio State University College of Optometry. And I believe this is the first optometrist we have had on our podcast. It is. It is. So, yay, Rick. He also served in the Contact Lens Practice Residency Program at the University of Alabama and Birmingham, Birmingham School of Optometry. Following his residency program, he was in a private optometric practice in Tampa, Florida. And over the past 39 years, Rick has held a number of different roles in clinical research and professional affairs for SEBA. Vision Corporation, and Alcon in the United States and Switzerland, which he'll tell you a little bit about. And currently, he is Vice President of Professional Affairs for Alcon, a global leader in eye care dedicated to helping people see brilliantly. I just love that. I do too. <laughs> Rick also serves as President of the National Academies of Practice, an interprofessional organization of healthcare practitioners and scholars dedicated to supporting coordinated quality healthcare for all patients. He has published and lectured internationally on a variety of eye care related topics. His professional affiliations include being a fellow of the American Academy of Optometry and a diplomat in its section on cornea contact lenses and refractive technologies. A fellow of the British Contact Lens Association, He's a fellow of the International Association of Contact Lens Educators, as well as a distinguished practitioner in optometry in the National Academies of Practice. So you got anything you know, want around your eyes, I think I would call Rick up, <laughs> especially if it comes to your contacts. <laughs> it was just such a pleasure to have both of them on the podcast today. And so without further ado, here's our interview with Jody and Rick. Welcome, Jody and Rick. We are super excited to have you on the podcast today. Well, we're delighted excited to, be, to here. be here. Great. Well, that's always helpful. <laughs> Kicks us off with the right energy, right? Always. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we've introduced you professionally to our audience, but let's get personal. Now, I, I won't ask too much personal stuff, but just a little bit. So they get to know you a little bit. So um, tell our listeners 
where you live and we know you both love to travel. So maybe a favorite place you've traveled to and why it was your favorite. I'll let Rick kick it off. Well, thanks. Uh, so I live in Fort Worth, Texas, and a favorite place for me to travel is Switzerland. And it is because I lived in Zurich for three years with my wife and two little children. So uh, a lot of great memories there for myself and our family. Wow. That sounds great. It was a wonderful experience. What took you there? Work. Work. <laughs> the the company. Company that I work for had its global headquarters in Zurich, and I was there for three of the four years that the global headquarters was located there. Oh wow! I think that's just such an awesome experience to actually live in a foreign country like that, right? And just to kind of get the feel of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. experience it. Great. How about you, Jody? Well, uh, I'm delighted to be here. I'm from Maryland, Lusby, Maryland. I'm just off the Chesapeake Bay, so my house faces the water. It's a tough, uh, tough thing, but somebody has to do it. <laughs> and, and I've had a lot of favorite places, but probably one of my favorite is the Bahamas. And it's because my husband and I have sailed on our 37-foot sailboat. Um, he sailed seven times. I've sailed four times down and back to the Bahamas. And um, we spent about three months living in the Bahamas. So when you talk about a cultural experience and visiting the islands, it truly is a culture experience. And the Bahamian people are absolutely phenomenal. They're fantastic. But um, they don't have the kind of resources we do. So it, it is a learning experience. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, we I love the Bahamas our, too. <laughs> yeah. We spent our 15 year wedding anniversaries with our husbands in the Bahamas. So love it. Yeah, we took them with us. <laughs> that was a good idea. And we travel most of the uh, remote islands. So we're not in the big islands. We're in some of the more remote islands where mm -hmm. uh, the water is absolutely pristine. It looks like a bathtub. And you can look down and see the starfish and the fish, everything. It's so crystal clear. There's nothing else like it in the world. And most people don't know the Bahamas is probably the clearest water uh, uh, on the globe right now. It is probably one of the clearest waters. Yep. Well, I'm certainly ready for a Bahama vacation. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, yeah. Everybody's got their hand up here. <laughs> well, I think the first thing we have to do is a big, huge congratulations to you, Rick, as the new president of the National Academies of Practice. Yay, Yay. Rick. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, of course, Michelle was the past president and, you know, I've been a member for a long time. And so we're real familiar with Nat, but our listeners probably aren't. So would you mind just sharing a little bit about Nat, kind of introduce it, why it exists? Be happy to. Thanks, Tracy. So NAP, also known as the National Academies of Practice, is a nonprofit organization that was founded in 1981 with the purpose to advise governmental bodies on our healthcare system. And our members consist of distinguished practitioners and scholars from 14 different healthcare professions who are nominated and elected by their peers. We are the only interprofessional group dedicated to supporting affordable, accessible, coordinated, quality healthcare for all. And at the National Academies of Practice, we firmly believe that close collaboration and coordination of the different healthcare professions align through a common vision and advocate for patients and model excellence in interprofessional and preventative care. At NAP, our passion is transforming interprofessional healthcare. Awesome. Go get them, team. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that, Rick. Jody, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah, uh, probably one other thing. Um, in 2020, after some longitudinal work, NAP actually adopted a unique set of organizational core values. And it's unique because it's not individual. It really is representing the collective uh, wisdom of 14 health professions. And it was actually from our leadership and our membership that these were called. And those four values are collaboration, 
patient-centeredness, inclusivity, and interconnectedness. Um, and they guide our organization's future, and I guide our strategic work as well. And it, it makes for a very different culture, perhaps, than more uni-professional types of organizations when you're looking at trying to be interconnected. And the success of the National Academies of Practice is because we focus on the patients, families, communities, and society, not on the professions. And it's slightly different and unique because of that. Yeah, well, Tracy and I are both huge advocates of being strong on your core values. We have them for our business. You know, we shared, uh, we just did some work yesterday and we shared our personal values. So it's, it's really foundational to a healthy organization. So kudos to you guys accomplishing that in the last several years. That's awesome. Well, thank you. And it really does take a team. It's a collective wisdom of everybody who gave us this input to help us frame what are our core yeah. values as an organization. Exactly, exactly. Well, um, you know, Jody and Rick, this is Michelle, and I consider um, being at the helm of the National Academies of Practices really one of my greatest honors. It was just such a blessing to work with phenomenal leaders like the two of you and so many others. And um, as you both know, I intentionally introduced um, to the leadership teams principles and concepts that Tracy and I worked with across North America with healthcare organizations for over 20 years at that time and um, brought them into the leadership teams within NAP over time. And um, I just wanted to reflect on some of those and have you um, tell our listeners the impact that had on the National Academies of Practice and you personally as, as leaders. And uh, today we are introducing these concepts to healthcare leaders through our work at Missing Logic. And the first one I want to um, talk about is the principles of healthy partnerships. And I actually had a flashback getting ready for this, this our interview today of handing everyone cards at one of our council meetings with the principles right in front of us. And uh, for our listeners, those are intention, being mission-driven, equal accountability, potential, balance, and trust. And um, just curious now what the two of you have seen or observed in the nature of the quality of relationships within NAP and with NAP's relationship with even outside organizations in the last six to seven years. So I'm going to start and I'm actually going to begin with the outside relationships. And I think it's kind of important and partly attributed to Michelle, you and under your leadership, um, there were intentional relationship exploration and getting back to our roots as a public policy and advocacy organization. As Rick had shared earlier, that was why we were founded. And so we actually began to have some intentional uh, mission-driven types of things where we were looking to connect with governmental agencies around public policies or interprofessional positions that we could be in an advisory relationship. And the first one with that was the Office of the National Coordinating is the first one we actually launched. And it was around health information technology. And they were struggling with um, trying to create a technology that would work across all health professions. And in many cases, health professions either weren't using them or they didn't apply or they were missing components of that. So NAP actually had a wonderful opportunity to share how to do that from an interprofessional lens. And our voice was heard. We actually went to the meetings and uh, that was the first of governmental. Several others followed, including the CMS and the skilled nursing facilities where we often commentary. Um, and then began to branch out with a new position that was actually created, a vice president for partnerships and networking, also under Michelle. She had some great vision for us. Um, and that was to begin to say, who should we be partnering with? And those were intentional. They were mission-driven, for sure. And they were around trust. So after we had the BP for partnerships and networking, we started to explore our assets. What is our value proposition? What do we have that others might be interested from an interprofessional lens and patient-centered? And we explored some intentional partnerships that would allow for collaborative and synergistic relationships, uh, not necessarily an exchange of money, but an exchange of value that we have things that they would benefit from as well as us having some things. And these have now become formalized uh, with some of our partnerships that are really um, ones that we can advance both organizations. And those synergies are actually becoming very interesting. They're interesting around um, some of the values such as um, evidence-based 
practice is one of them. Some of them are around advancing issues around pain and opioid abuse and management uh, with the National Academies of Medicine. Um, there are others that we continue to explore that give us an opportunity to really get closer to our vision down the road and they can help us and we can help them get there. So I think because of the uh, value proposition and a formalizing of the partnerships, you'll see NAP move forward some very promising and robust partnerships in the future that'll be reevaluated on an annual basis to make sure that both partners are getting what they had hoped for and that we're advancing that. And like I said, it goes back to intentionality. It goes back to trust and it goes back to accountability. We have some promise keeping. If we say we'll do something and they do, then a year later, we have to see where our promises met. So I think that's a little bit about what's happened with partnerships from an advisory governmental to one that's now intentional to grow our organization. And I uh, think Rick will talk a little bit more about what goes on internally around how we uh, express those values. Thank you, Jody. So certainly NAP is a very different organization today than what it was 40 years ago when uh, the group was founded. And as a result of applying principles of healthy partnership, uh, we've seen some dramatic changes in how the organization functions. For example, uh, we used to have a problem in terms of having a quorum for several of our different meetings. And uh, the quorum problem has gone away as we've applied the principles. And we're to a point now where our members notify us days in advance if they can't come to a meeting. So I think this is a great example of intention and equal accountability. Uh, we've also moved to more frequent meetings and get-togethers, and that's allowed for stronger relationships to form, getting to know one another a little bit better, and that's built trust. Uh, we've incorporated generative discussions, and this allows everybody to have a voice, and it builds potential, balance, and trust. It allows us to learn from each other. Uh, we've also implemented pairing of academies together. Uh, they want to learn from one another. So this reinforces the intention and mission-driven aspects of principles of healthy partnership. And finally, we see a tremendous engagement of our members. 35 to 40% of our members are involved in committees, task force, planning groups, other activities. And I can't think of too many other professional organizations where they have engagement at that high of a level. So certainly principles of a healthy partnership have paid big dividends for National Academies of Practice. Uh, thank you for sharing those examples and sort of being a you know firsthand witness. I think the examples you shared were um, spot on and so excellent. And you know, there's so much power when you bring professional organizations together that have a common mission, maybe different, but common that you can really get such a big impact together. So I think it's really exciting how you're collaborating with other organizations to move NAP's um, vision and mission forward. And also, um, Rick, the collaboration that's been going on within NAP has been just remarkable the last several years. So, Hey, it's Michelle, and we're going to get right back to this episode. But I had to interrupt really quick and let you know the doors to our new self-study program, Caring for Others Without Neglecting You, is open for enrollment. We know, especially right now, with everything your team has been through this past year, that you want to do all you can to support them, help them to recover and be resilient, and even experience joy in their work again, and they need your support. If you are like most healthcare leaders we talk to, you may have been overwhelmed, exhausted, and stressed before the pandemic, and things aren't getting any better. They're getting worse. So it's easy to see that if you don't prioritize caring for you, you won't have anything left to give to your team. So stop neglecting you and go over to missinglogic.com forward slash new dash events to learn more and enroll today. Yeah, let me ask you. So um, what is it that you or what, what's the what was the impact on the individual level that you think occurred that has also influenced how people are being together or how they're being with other organizations? like? What did you notice was happening with, with individual people? 
or yourselves. <laughs> well, certainly being more engaged and and more uh, aligned to what our, our mission is all about has uh, been a, a very uh, positive result. And I, I think it uh, is something that has been learned by the entire membership group because oftentimes leadership skills are, are not taught in our professional education. And our, our members are very uh, accomplished in their professions and very accomplished in the work that they do with their patients and in teaching and research. But uh, developing those leadership skills is not always the easiest thing in the world to do. So I, I think what we've seen is people really step up and become more comfortable in leadership roles. Mm -hmm. I also might say that, uh, interestingly, the pandemic, uh, although not who wanted the pandemic, um, the interesting thing about that, though, is we needed to find alternative ways to ensure members' voices were heard. And so we instituted town hall meetings. And at those meetings, there are opportunities for each individual member to weigh in, to give their opinion. We now do a chatter and the chatter gets in one to two minutes. Everybody gets to respond to a question that then becomes uh, analyzed and categorized. And we use that information to help us advance our organization under different initiatives. So I think the other point about engagement is if members have a voice and they see some of the voice they have changing the organization, they believe that the accountability of leadership is that they're following through on what they want to see. And I think that re-engages more people if actually what they want is happening in the organization. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. The, uh, the other uh, principles that we really practice together and learn together were the principles of dialogue. And we know it's so important to have meaningful conversations in our homes, in our work cultures, and certainly within professional organizations as well. So we uh, covered uh, the principle of intention again, what, you know, who we're bringing to that space for the conversation, listening, advocacy, which is just sharing our unscripted thinking with each other, um, asking each other questions through inquiry and silence. And so, again, when you think about the quality of meaningful conversations, what have your observations been there within the National Academies of Practice? Well, certainly there's been a lot of uh, change in healthcare as well over the years. And what we found at National Academies of Practice, Michelle, as you very well remember, was we weren't in the best position to make changes and adapt to the changing times. So under your leadership, we really had to think about how we were going to tackle some of the meaty issues that never seemed to get addressed. And, you know, we would have council meetings on a quarterly basis, and they'd be an hour or an hour and a half in length, but they really allowed more for update and business and not really the opportunity to tackle those things that we really needed to tackle to adjust to the changing times. So under your leadership, we created what we called an I and O task force, and the I stood for interprofessional and the O for operations. And this was the opportunity to think together and to list the possibilities. So there was intention, there was listening, there was advocacy, there was inquiry and science. All of, all of the principles of dialogue uh, came into play. And what it resulted in were uh, some significant changes to how the National Academies of Practice operate. For example, it is allowing us to add new academies. As I mentioned, we have 14 currently. We have a couple in the wings. But our bylaws were very restrictive and made it difficult to add new professions and disciplines. For example, we just recently added athletic trainers to our group. There's interest in adding dietitians and public policy. So we had to uh, change our bylaws and our way of thinking in terms of how things had changed in the 40 years since the organization was founded. And there was some resistance to change, as you can imagine. Some felt that it would be a lowering of our standards uh, that are that were intended by our, our founding uh, fathers and that it would lessen the organization and lessen the value proposition 
for our existing and potential new members. So we used the task force as an opportunity to identify what was important, to look at honoring the past, but also look towards the future. And what we found was that by simply changing some of the wording, not the intent, but changing some of the wording, we were able to move into the future and subsequently allow for future growth. So I think we've seen uh, the principles of dialogue really benefit the National Academies of Practice organization and really position us for the future. Uh, and um, a specific situation comes to mind, Michelle, for me, and you were a part of this. It uh, had to do with our executive leadership team. And in 2019, three days prior to our annual forum in San Diego, we were confronted and had been tracking all along what was going on in uh, the pandemic. And it was not declared a pandemic yet. It was a health situation, so to speak. But we had to meet and we had an emergency meeting with our executive director who had compiled all the evidence we had for California. And we all came together and it was it was a challenging and difficult time because we had to have an open dialogue with listening and principles and separate the head and the heart. We had to make a decision based on evidence, even if our heart wanted us to all get together. We represent a healthcare organization. All of our members are in the healthcare business, whether it's higher education and scholarship or practice. And it was a very crucial conversation and probably one of the most crucial we've had in the last couple of years. And each person on that committee spoke individually. They weighed in individually in the principles of dialogue. We all just sat and listened. And um, one by one, each one of us, unfortunately, came to the same conclusion, not what we chose to do with our heart, but what we had to do with our head. And at the end, we trusted the decision of the group of members. Um, and we made the decision that three days before the launch of our meeting in San Diego, we canceled the conference to the extent that we trusted our AMR staff to call every registrant personally to let them know the meeting was canceled so they would not show up early in a hotel where there was nobody there. Um, I, I think that was, for me, a quintessential example of a principle of dialogue and even asking in the round individually, what does your head tell you? Now tell me what your heart tells you. And even though they were contrary, the decision was unanimous by the group that we had to cancel it. And I, I think the principles of dialogue are what really helped us safely navigate what was a very difficult conversation. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I agree with you. That was a profound experience. And I think in both of your examples, in looking at transforming the organization and also having to make a difficult decision, it really demonstrates how powerful knowing and mastering dialogue skills can help you come to consensus. You know, that's, you know, everything's not a vote. You really have to tap the wisdom of everyone and just trust together we are going to figure this out and really honoring the consensus process, knowing we can always go back and reevaluate it. And um, I think we all felt pretty good that we were certain we made the right decision in 2019 <laughs> when just a couple days later, you know, all heck broke out. <laughs> And I was telling Tracy that this year at the National uh, Academies of Practice Forum and one of the couple of the small groups that I was in, there was a lot of um, inquiry about respiratory therapy becoming part of the National Academies of Practice because of the national focus of the strong collaboration between respiratory therapists and the interprofessional team uh, that played out in COVID. It's just like for many of the professions that raised them up, public health and um, and so, as our listeners know, Tracy is a respiratory therapist, and she was National Academy of Practice first associate member in 2013. There's just still so much that can happen, and then I and I think NAP is just you know poised to um, really look at other professionals too and continue that quest, Rick, through the through the INO uh, work and in other venues as well. Yeah, I I have a question for you. So. Because I believe that's what's, what's most personal is most general. So I want to ask you, what were the biggest pain points you were experiencing before these skills were introduced? You know, can I mean, I think other professional organizations, other leaders have to handle challenges with communication and 
and, you know, having meaningful conversations and coming to consensus to Michelle's point. Um, so I just wondered if you can recall, like, what were your pain points around communication and having conversations like this before? Um, I can share. <laughs> when I first joined NAP, it was 2014. The nature of conversations among leadership was um, about 180 degrees different. Uh, I don't know that people felt comfortable um, sharing what may be a sensitive or personal opinion or the way in which they were shared. You were concerned that you wouldn't be heard. I, I don't know how to put that, but that it, your listeners may have been judging you rather than listening to you. And so many times you were afraid to put out what might be a contrary opinion because if they judged you, you thought that it could be judging you harshly. And today when there, um, someone has a different point of view, we just ask follow-up questions and explore and say, can you tell me more about that? I hadn't heard that. What does that mean? And then asking others, what does that mean to you? If you hear that, how would that fit? Could we make it fit? It's just a very different conversation and people are willing to be vulnerable and open and honest without, without feeling like they're going to be judged if they're different. Yeah. So I think what I you're, what, what I'm hearing you say, Jody, is you creating a container of safety is really what you're doing in that, that situation so that people feel free to bring that voice. Stop spot on. It is a safe space. It is a safe space where people can have differences and know that there is no judgment levied or uh, nobody's going to form a negative opinion because they have a differing perception or view. I completely agree with uh, everything that you've said, Jody. And from my perspective, uh, the organization has changed more in the last six to seven years than it did in all of the years preceding it. And I think one of the biggest reasons for that is there was a lack of shared purpose in, in the uh, organization. It was founded 40 years ago, and it trudged along, and uh, subsequently meetings were uh, very routine. Issues that were raised uh, were raised meeting after meeting. We just kind of kicked the can down the road, and as healthcare changed, uh, the National Academies of Practice didn't change. And I mentioned earlier the high engagement rate we have with our members. It wasn't always that. Uh, I can remember in the days, early days when I got involved, uh, there was very little member engagement. It was a couple people doing everything. And uh, subsequently, the organization didn't advance. So by applying the principles, uh, it really has propelled us, uh, not in a linear fashion, but in an exponential fashion to be poised for the future. Yeah. <clears throat> so what I pick up from that, Rick, is that really leveraging these two things together, the relationship piece and the dialogue piece, has really helped you to manage this, the polarity of continuity and transformation. So honoring the past, staying with the things that have made NAP what it is, but at the same time, evolving and growing and moving into the future. And it kind of created totally that space for that to happen. Yes. And I like to refer to it as our proud past and our bright future, Tracy. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to describe it. It is. It yeah. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of kicking the can down the road, <laughs> um, that's another reason that uh, polarity thinking was introduced to the National Academies of Practice Council and executive team at one of uh, the leadership uh, gatherings that we had and actually spent a day and a half really understanding the foundations of polarities. And um, we learned together about uh, common polarities within the whole scope of interprofessional care. What are some common ones there? And we certainly also had the opportunity to explore ones that impacted the National Academy of Practice itself. And so um, wanna, just want to ask you again, just from your experience, having lived through that, um, the impact that has had uh, of adding that polarity lens, the, you know, the polarity um, mindset or what Tracy and I call the missing logic <laughs> to, um, to the whole leadership experience and, and having that also be a part of it becoming a growing and thriving organization. 
Absolutely. And polarity thinking has really helped all of us deal with the issue of um, a polarity that doesn't need to be fixed. It needs to be balanced that both of them, if you keep them both strong, you have a, an opportunity for the organization to thrive. And if one starts going on a downside, you need to look at those um, those red flags and say, what's going on? And a perfect example is polarity thinking was interspersed with also strategic planning and thinking, and it really made for a powerful recipe for NAP. Our ability to understand when situations need to be managed, not a right or wrong answer, but how to keep both sides strong to advance the organization has key. A perfect one is the individual academy as a polarity and the organization. How do you make sure the academies are strong, which also helps to strengthen the organization? If the organization is strong and the academies are not, we will not survive and vice versa. So NAP developed recently a value proposition. And the value proposition is the unique reasons why someone would choose to be a member of this interprofessional organization. And we uh, got input from members and council and general membership. And there was a huge lengthy list initially. I mean, lots and lots and lots of reasons. And then the interprofessional and organizational task force that Rick talked about actually tackled these reasons to narrow them down. And they got them down to a top eight list. But if you read them, they actually are a list of polarities. So as you go through them, you'll see a culture for the organization. You'll see the ability to be a part of your academy and your colleagues. You'll also see individualized, the individual, individualized needs for professional development met while also having an organization that does public policy and advocacy as interprofessional teams. You actually can read through the eight of these and you will see a series of polarities that describe our culture. But what makes it even more unique is if you read our value proposition, our top eight reasons and read other interprofessional, they are very, very different. They're very unique. And everybody, as they read through the eight, finds a home as an individual on that list, but also says, I have a chance to be a part of unique organizational culture and academy, as well as making my individual needs. That's, that's a very unique place. And I think the polarities helped us learn putting them all on the list is a good thing, not a bad thing. It actually strengthens our organization and it finds a way for all of us to feel like we belong and they're connected. So I would say that recent example really, um, as you read through, it shines through. The polarities are all there in the, the list of eight. That's great. I can add a couple of other examples to how the polarity uh, lens has impacted the organization positively. And uh, within the National Academies of Practice, our members are called distinguished fellows. And one of the requirements to be a distinguished fellow is you have to be in your professional career at least 10 years. Uh, it's always been that way. But a couple of years ago, we realized that our membership was aging out and that we weren't bringing in new younger members. So by using a polarity lens, we were able to uh, work through the organization and we created a professional member category, which is for those individuals who are five years into their professional careers. So it really is the up and comers. And this has added a lot of lifeblood to the organization. It's added a lot of excitement. And our goal is to convert these professional members into distinguished fellows. So it allows for a development type of opportunity as well. And then the second example that I can cite uh, Michelle and Tracy is the organization when it was founded had what was known as a membership cap. So each of the 14 academies could only have a maximum of, at that time, 40 years ago, 100 members. As the organization grew, the membership cap was up to 150. As the organization grew again, it was up to 250. And that was always viewed as a sacred cow. You can't bypass that membership cap because we don't want any one profession to dominate over the rest of the organization because it's 14 professions or 14 academies of equal. So by using the polarity lens, we were able to uh, address the situation because it was definitely affecting our ability to grow. And what we did is we asked the question, if we were to change and eliminate the cap, what would be your biggest concern or fear? And as we posed that question, the resounding answer was 
the concern of equal representation in the event that one group did get larger than the other. And what we were able to do using the polarity lens was craft a voting policy that stated regardless of the number of people on a committee or a task force or involved in an activity, they would be limited to one vote per academy or per profession. Concern was eliminated. So with a simple bylaws change to no cap, it's allowing us for future growth and allowing the organization to thrive. So I think the examples are perfect in demonstrating how polarity can help you move from decades of being stuck on an issue and not being able to solve it or kicking the can down the road, as we've said, to coming up with creative solutions and really addressing what is the heart of the matter. Well, I think that's an excellent example because I think for the most part, when people are stuck, it's because of fears, right? So you got right to the heart of why people were hanging on to their preference poll and not, you know, not being willing or able to see that there was another side to this, that there was another benefit to that. And I think it broadened out the picture. So good for you. That's wonderful. Yeah, that, those are great examples. And, you know, Tracy and I, um, these principles are so important. We, we believe for every leader, for organizations, and, and when they're all kind of, when they're all combined, um, we say it's polarity intelligence. It, it, and the more you use them, the more you just bring them wherever you are. What, um, what are some of the learnings you've had personally as leaders and um, your own leadership? I think one of the biggest leadings for me, Michelle, is uh, just the whole concept of and thinking, um, that there isn't just one solution. And what I've learned is that different people look at things differently, and you really can learn from one another. Uh, typically, when a polarity exists, it shows up as a resistance to change, which is pretty much every example that we've talked about today. And when you listen to the possibilities, and when you learn from others, it generates a better result. It, it is the old adage of one and one is not two, it's three, four, five. And I think what it has done for me personally is really taught me about collaborative leadership and how polarity is a strong part of that. And not only is it applicable to my role within National Academies of Practice as a volunteer, but it's impacted my professional life and my personal life as well. And it's just allowed me to look at things through a different lens, as, as you've said, and just gain a different perspective on things. It's one of those things I wish I would have learned about 30 years earlier in my career, but um, I've taken it and run with it. Hey, everything happens at the right time. So you weren't ready for it then. <laughs> <laughs> or it wasn't ready for me. Well, wow, yes. that might be true too. That might be true too. <laughs> so I think, Rick, your comments are a great example of the some of the benefits, right, of of all of this and polarity thinking specifically is overcoming that resistance. And in your um, example earlier, you know, it was resistance to a certain element, but there's also just resistance to hearing other voices. And I think what this does is it brings such hope to all of us that we can open ourselves up, not just to make change happen, but to hear another perspective, to be okay that somebody doesn't agree with you or has a different point of view. And I think that is just so needed right now. So thanks for bringing that forth. And I'm so glad that you have learned that yourself. So uh, I can echo what uh, Rick said. I, uh, my other job as a consultant, I'm also a professional facilitator. And one of the things that's helped me with is how to listen differently. So when I start hearing the polarity in a conversation, instead of trying to sit there and fix it, which is what I would try to do in a facilitation, how am I going to fix it? I would sit back and my questions are very different now. And the questions are, are around polarity and also the principles of dialogue, both of those. And it's trying to get out on the table, uh, not only fears and trepidations, but also um, what's the worst thing that could happen? If we don't do this, what do we lose? Um, if we stay where we are, does that help us? I mean, the questions are very different. 
And I'm no longer trying to solve any problem in many of the cases when it is a polarity, different than you have to make a decision. It's more about the conversation and the dialogue and how we get people to be able to have that conversation. And then in the end, the strongest part is when actually the individuals in the conversation begin to recognize for themselves it's a polarity without you telling them. When they finally come to an aha and they say, oh, we can have both, can't we? And your answer is, yeah, we could have both. We just have to figure out how we can have both. It may not look the way any one of us think, but collectively, we might actually have a very different picture. And as Michelle and Rick know, I ascribe to a shared leadership model. It's the model I used when I was president of NAP. And that model really brings out the dialogue and brings out polarities. It allows those to come forward and is designed in such a way that you actually maximize people's strengths and you help them navigate in a polarity. So similar to Rick, I think it's very powerful. I think it lets you sit back and relax in a leadership role and not have to yeah. fix, but actually listen and be much more thoughtful um, and reflective. And you think more about what question helps us navigate the conversation rather than how do I fix this problem? And I think for me, that just, it reduced a lot of stress in a leadership role when you learn that. Well, it's an excellent point. Right. Because we just well, as leaders, we feel so accountable to have the answer. So I've got to figure this out. Right. I got to figure out what's the solution here. And so I well, I can really appreciate that, Jody, mm -hmm. that it is it's an mm -hmm. opportunity to just be and to get the context of what's really happening, to get the whole picture mm -hmm. and not rush into this is something that's a problem and has to be fixed. But what really is it? Is it a problem? Or is this a polarity, right? And just kind of sinking into getting all the information to discern which it is and hearing the voices to make the, the absolute right choice, right? Yeah, That's spot on. And listening yeah. with a third ear, it allows you yeah. to listen what I call a third ear, which is really different than what you hear immediately. It's not, it's not what you hear, it's what you don't hear. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, those are great examples. Great examples. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, lastly, as we begin to wrap things up, of course, we, uh, you know, the 40th anniversary was incredible. The recent virtual conference for NAP and celebration of the 40th anniversary. Again, that, you know, the best of the past and the brightest of the future, right? Coming together. And, um, and you know, you had your new branding that you showcased, you know, with your new tagline, transforming interprofessional healthcare. Oh boy. A little patter of the heart, you know, <laughs> <laughs> our sole purposes here on earth. Right. And um, so, you know, let's, let's, we've been through the past and we've been to where we are, but let's look to the future. And what is NAP's future? And what is NAP going to be, you know, bringing when it comes to interprofessional health care? I think NAP is uniquely positioned for the future, Tracy. Um, as we've talked about, our passion is transforming interprofessional healthcare. And what that does is it puts the patient at the center of the wheel. And that's important to all healthcare professionals. That's, you know, ultimately what you went to school and what you were educated on. You wanted to deal with patients. You wanted to deal with clients. You wanted to uh, work with them on a day in and day out day in day out uh, basis. And what, uh, what NAP's position is, is dealing with that total person, dealing with the total uh, community of individuals. And it allows us to be positioned to foster collaboration and advocating for policies in the best interest of individuals and communities. Given that we have an aging population and that there are massive changes occurring in healthcare, it's going to force interprofessional healthcare. And in addition, better educated patients who are also consumers are going to demand it. So NAP is in the right place at the right time to really help transform interprofessional healthcare. And I have to defer a bit to Rick because he's the current president. So under his leadership, we'll see where we evolve. But one of the things I think will happen is um, because the patient's at the center, it's time we walk the talk. And to do that, we need something that provides for our future consumer portal. 
in the National Academies of Practice where they actually can go in and look at questions about what should I look for in a good interprofessional team? What are the hallmarks of a good collaborative team? How do I ask the question if I'm not getting one? How do I get a good team? Um, how can we expand the academies to have a better, more rounded perception of the team voice? We need more of those like respiratory therapy, et cetera, to help us frame those questions. Um, so we really have a strong team. How can our interprofessional scholarship support our advocacy efforts? That's a, and a critical pairing that what we know and what we learn need to advance what is in the best interest for instance, we're going to the Hill shortly this month in Interprofessional Healthcare Month, and we're going to uh, do virtual Hill visits on telehealth for all professions that really advocates for what consumers need. Um, and so our strong public policies, uh, our advocacy, all of those are core to who we are, um, And but truly reflecting what is transforming interprofessional healthcare. I think we need a conversation among our own members. What does that look like for us? I think one of the conversations is when we say that, what does that really mean for us as an organization? So our for future strategic initiatives are really going to focus on some of those questions. How do you translate what our new brand is into what really is a reality that people will see it and know it when they see it? Wow. That's our great points. It, you know, it, it can look different for different individuals, different professional groups, right? Like within all the different academies. So I think that's a great question. Like, what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, who do we want to be? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> see when we grow up <laughs> and evolve, right? So yeah, I right. think those are those are perfect questions to be asking at this point in time, and that will evolve as well, right? That that's not a stagnant thing either. To your point, as things evolve in healthcare, it'll have new meaning. It'll mean something different. It'll continue to grow. It's certainly, you know, the efforts around interprofessional care, team-based care have been going on for over 50 years. And it certainly doesn't look anything like, you know, it did when those initial efforts started 50, 60 years ago, right? So again, it's just going to evolve and grow. And, and uh, it's exciting to have organizations like NAP, you know, preparing to serve the clinicians, the communities, the patients, you know, and um, in each of the professions. So congratulations on that. It's really, really exciting time. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And just thank you both so much for being with us today. Um, I think it's just perfect. We are, um, you know, we're doing this recording uh, in April during Interprofessional Healthcare Month, which is a proclamation that Nat brought to forward uh, several years ago now. And um, it's just it just seems perfect timing for this interview. And I really appreciate you sharing your personal experience. It's often we don't really get to walk in the shoes of leaders and hear the impact, hear the stories, hear the progress. And um, it's been a real gift, I think, for our listeners to understand a little bit more about what's happening in interprofessional care, where we're at today, and uh, you know where we need to go for tomorrow. So thank you both. Yes, thank you. It was a thank fabulous you. interview. Yeah, yeah. Thoroughly enjoyed it and very enlightening, I'm sure, for our listeners and, and us as well. So any last statements you want to make or anything you want to say to our listeners before we wrap it up for today? I'd like to thank Michelle for bringing polarity thinking and principles of dialogue and intentionality to our organization. I think uh, one of the many uh, hallmarks that you left in legacy, but those are going to be transformative for us as an organization today and in the future. So thank you for sharing that with all of us. That's a gift that we got from you and we appreciate that. I completely agree, and all I'll add is thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, work with you, to participate in this podcast, and to help share some of our thoughts about leadership in healthcare and how uh, we all collectively can transform interprofessional care and really concentrate on the total patient. Uh, as I mentioned, there uh, is definitely going to be a need given the aging population and better educated patients, and we'll be better positioned to do what we all went to school to do. So thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. You're, you're welcome. so welcome. And good luck to you, Rick. Yes. At the helm. No pressure. No pressure. 
<laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. And for our listeners, this wraps up another episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. And uh, we will see you next time. Yeah, Bye. Stay, stay healthy and stay safe. Yeah. And be interprofessional. Thanks, as always, for listening to Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. You can find show notes and links at our website, missinglogic.com forward slash new dash podcast. If you're the kind of leader who wants to help others, then share this podcast with your peers and other healthcare leaders. We're certain if you found value in it, they will too. Please share this on your social media channels and leave us a review in iTunes. If you don't know how to leave a review, you can find instructions at the end of the show notes. We'd also love to hear and answer your questions. So if you have some questions, you can email us at questions at missinglogic.com. And we may include your question in a future episode.